I want to be better every day because that passion for wanting to be better and wanting to improve is not something you can teach someone. You can teach anyone how to cook. You can teach anyone how to cut an onion. You can teach anyone how to make a sauce. You can't teach someone that inner desire to be better. And so it's that drive to just be the better version of yourself every single day to evolve, to progress. And I kind of try to bring that into every part of my life in and out of the kitchen. That's the drive you need in any business, in any any career that you're taking. If you have that passion just to be better, you're going to be successful. flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. My guest today is Joe Sasto, celebrity chef, creator, consultant, pasta expert, who dazzled fans on Top Chef and who worked at two and three Michelin star restaurants in the Bay Area. This is episode 101 on the Flavors Unknown podcast. I am your host, Emmanuel Laroche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have conversations with acclaimed American chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists talking about their path to success, their challenges, and as well, how their cultural background influences their creative process. Please don't forget to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts and on social media at Flavors Unknown. And you can also subscribe to our newsletter at flavorsunknown.com. In this episode, Joe Sasto shares his main focus is life, which is wanting to be better every day and his eternal quest for knowledge. We obviously talk about pasta making, the future of the industry, and unique projects Chef Josasto has with CPG companies. Hi, Chef. How are you? Doing great. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. And I'm really excited to have you on the show. Thank you very much. I know you're extremely busy. You just came back from travel. So I I do appreciate the time that you are giving us today. Of course, of course. I mean, it's always good to connect with others and to talk about food and talk about cooking. I mean, I'm lucky enough to be able to do what I love every day. So, you know, let's talk about it. I missed you at the NRA. So I just want to specify the NRA stands for the National Restaurant Association Show. Yes, I always always specify. I was like, don't get it twisted. It's the National Restaurant Association. (laughs) Absolutely. Not the NRA. Not the uh, other one. Yes. uh, The media right now. Not exactly. And so you were there, you were doing a pasta demo at a booth from a a pasta machine company. I've seen that, you know, nowadays you're doing a a lot of things with, you know, with brands and, you know, so a different aspect of the role of of chefs. So can you talk to us about this and what made you interested in this type of uh, business? Yeah, of course. I mean, the, the opportunity at the, at the NRA show to work with Pasta Biz, for me, it was like kind of one of those full circle moments because I remember very early on in my career, this was probably like 2013 or so when I had first been to the NRA show and it's like this big convention. It's huge with different purveyors and food companies and food service and equipment and like kind of everything that you need in the restaurant business is there for the show. And I had just gotten into pasta making. I was working at Quince at the time. And I remember coming upon the Pasta Biz booth. And they are a very well-known pasta company, especially on the West Coast. They're based in San Francisco. So I was familiar with them. I'd use their machines. Like I had, we had them in the restaurant. And Mark Vetri's photo was blown up. And he was like kind of the headlining chef there. And the main attraction working for Pasta Biz. And I was just like, Mark, you know, looking up to Mark Vetri is the godfather of Italian cooking and pasta making here in the US. And I just remember thinking to myself like, wow, one day, one day that's going to be me. I want that to be me. I want to be able to, to represent this brand. I want to get to that point in my career, pasta making and everything to be able to do that. And just 
this past year, you know, I'd been working with Pasta Biz pretty closely, building a relationship with them over the years. And they had asked me if they could use my photo, my image, and if I would come do a demo for them. And when I got to the show and seeing my 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 headshot blown up on the big display in the center of the the NRA show, I was like, this is this That's is awesome. it's like full circle. Full circle moments. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was the other time when that happened was when I I had first gotten into competition cooking and I competed on Chopped, which is like a show I grew up watching. I'd like sit on the couch and be like, oh, this is what I'm going to do. I know exactly. Did it. I finally got the opportunity to compete on it. It was the first cooking competition I did and I had won. And I just remember being like, I want to be a judge. Like that's, you know, year one. And full circle, I think it, was, it took maybe about 10 years. I think it was maybe 10, nine years. I just recently this year started judging on Chopped. So oh, wow. Judging there. And that was another one of those full circle moments kind of in my career that means a lot to me. I mean, on paper, whatever it is, sure, it's just another thing. But it, it was definitely a meaningful moment for me to be able to kind of complete that circle, close the loop in that sense. And I learned something from the producers. I didn't realize there's only there's only ever been five chefs that in the history of like their however many years they've been doing the show, 20 something years that have competed one and came back to be a regular judge. As a judge, so, okay. Very small group of, of individuals. I was really excited about that. Something I was proud of. So I have obviously a logical next question here, which is what is like next on your list of checking the box of full circle? Oh boy. I don't know. That's a good, that's actually a really good question. And it's one of those things I, I, I don't put a lot of thought to in the moment. Like I'm more in the mindset of just like, I want to be better every single day than the day before. Something like I heard a story very early on in my career when I was working, I was working for Michael Mina. I was in one of his restaurants and this was probably, this was the first real kitchen that I had worked in a like real restaurant real cooking. We weren't like taking shortcuts or, you know, buying pre-made things. And it was during our, our daily meeting with a chef that I was working for at the time was running the restaurant, uh, a chef named Jason Berthold. He was Corey. He was Thomas Keller's right-hand man opening per se. He worked closely with Corey Lee, came from the French laundry school of cooking. And he was telling a story of something Thomas, chef Keller had said to everyone about how they how he decided how to hire people. Because obviously, especially at that time back, mid-2000s, 2010, 2005, like when French Laundry was really the place to be, they had tons and tons of interns and stages and externs and cooks and chefs coming there trying to get a job. And one of the questions Chef Thomas would ask everyone would be like, oh, what are you passionate about? And Obviously, everyone would say cooking. Like, oh, I just want to cook. I'll be the best cook. I want, like, I'm passionate about cooking. And he didn't care about that. What he wanted people to hear and the people that immediately got the job were the ones that said, I want to be better every day. Because that passion for wanting to be better and wanting to improve is not something you can teach someone. You can teach anyone how to cook. You can teach anyone how to cut an onion. You can teach anyone how to make a sauce. You can't teach someone that inner desire to be better. And so whether that's using one less towel the next day than you did the shift before, whether that's being set up two minutes earlier for service than you were the day before. And so it's that drive to just be the better version of yourself every single day to evolve, to progress. And that's something that like that story has stuck with me through my entire career. And I kind of try to bring that into every part of my life in and out of the kitchen is just, I want to be better every day than the than I was the time before. Every opportunity, everything that I do, every time I shoot a video or that I'm creating something or I'm cooking or working out at the gym, I just want to be better than I was the day before. And I feel like that's the drive you need in any business, in any any career that you're taking. If you have that passion just to be better than you were the day before, it's something like you're going to be successful. You're going to succeed. Like regardless of your circumstances, like that is one of those driving forces that I think can carry you so far. So that's kind of more so what I what I strive for, less than like I have a, a checklist of things that I want to accomplish. Cause I just I just want to keep accomplishing things. I don't think there's like I'll ever feel like I'm done. It's like cooking, you're never like a master of anything. 
You know, even the pasta make people call me a pasta master. It's like, I'm always an apprentice. Like I always want to learn. I'm never done learning. Yeah. That's what I wanted to say. I said, you know, to strive to get better at something, it's for me almost the second step is the first one is acquiring the knowledge because you are passionate about something or there's something new that you're exposed to and then you want to learn, you know, and then you want to get better at it. I'm just trying to understand if this is the way how you approach everything in your life because, you know, at the moment you are doing a lot of, it seems that you are learning different things and get, and getting better at it like you know you are you launched like a, a brand of a, a pasta snack for instance which is completely outside of what you know other chefs you know are, are doing so is it this curiosity you know about it and then after that to try to m make and commercialize like the better pasta snack you know that could be yeah i, th I think it's kind of like twofold it's like the the first thing is that endless pursuit of knowledge where, I mean, even now with contracts and uh, agents and managers and I, before I had a manager and an agent, I was reading through every contract and I wanted to learn how to read legal jargon. I wanted to understand what all those different clauses and things said and just spending time learning those things. When I started doing photography and videography, spending hours on YouTube, just watching demos and tutorials and, playing around on the computer and playing with the camera in the different settings and that kind of like endless pursuit of knowledge, no matter what it is in the kitchen, out of the kitchen, pasta making, bread making, like I get obsessed almost to like a fault where I just spend all of my brain power, my waking moments, my sleeping moments, thinking about that thing and wanting to learn as much as I can about it until I feel like I can teach it to someone else. And then once I'm confident in my ability to explain something to someone, because they say, you don't really understand something until you can teach it. And so that's kind of like my, my threshold. If there's something new I want to learn, I want to learn it well enough to be able to teach that to someone else that doesn't know how to do it. And then I feel like, okay, I could take a step back from this now. And I don't, I could, I could move on to the next thing or I'll, I'll continue to still want to learn about that. But that's kind of like, all right, now I could put the brakes on it and take it easy. And now the same thing with, with, this, uh, with this CPG. So I just launched a, a puff pasta snack called Tantos, which kind of roughly translates to mean so much yes. It's like a phrase in Italian, Tanto C means so much yes in Italian. So it kind of was like, came from that. And it's a puff pasta chip. It's a snack food, four different flavors, marinara, pesto, cacio pepe, and tiramisu. So all your Italian classics. And learning that snack food side of the business is eye-opening. Like there is so much to, from creating a brand and meeting with the brand designers and going through phases. And it's like that to me, the choosing the, the branding and the packaging and the colors and ever, that was harder than one of the hardest things I've ever done. Because one, it almost feels like you're like birthing a child. Like you're not going to really change this in theory. You know, you look at any big brand and yes, they, they change through the years, like logos change, but you're kind of committed to that for the, for the better part of the, the birth of this brand. So seeing that whole process was like, as a creative, someone who creates in the kitchen and creates digitally being part of that creative process was totally eye-opening. And now we're on to the co-packing and distribution side of that. And fortunately, I have a partner who is incredibly well-versed in this. This is his second business. He's a self-made entrepreneur. He came from like that, the school of Shark Tank, went through Shark Tank, did very well on that, and has one business that does very well, not in the food space at all. He's in the pet, the pet industry. And so... This is learning for him, but he's able to take a lot of that kind of business knowledge that he has to and apply to your brand, yeah. this product. And because I could not do it without him. Let's talk a little bit about the product itself, because, you know, you have the experience of the product in kitchen setting. But here now we are talking about a CPG product where this is a different type of scale. Even if it's a lot of people that you are serving in the kitchen, now it's, you know, pilot and then it's scale up, you know, into the industry level. So how did you live through that? And how do you guide, let's say, did you guide like the, the product development of, of this puff pasta? 
It was something that kind of happened. It was a happy accident, to be honest. It was something that I came up with while working in the restaurant. We'd always had pasta around and I had like played around with different ways of frying it and was noticing it kind of acting very similar to a chicharron. We're kind of puffed up, got that really puffy, airy, bubbly texture or like a pork rind. And so playing around with that process, dialing in that technique to get it to the point where I really wanted it because it's kind of like a pork rind, but not really. It's made of pasta. And then I started serving it at my pop-ups and it became like a staple at the beginning and end of my meal, my pop-ups. And I wasn't doing those flavors. Initially, I was doing like chef-driven flavors. So I, you know, yuzu and Aleppo pepper or like cumin and a Szechuan peppercorn, you know, like interesting combinations of like chef-y ingredients and was doing them spiced and dressed up like that. And that's how I kind of, one of my, that, the partner that I have now had come to the, come to one of my pubs. He was like, these are really good. Has anyone ever told you, like, why aren't you packaging these? And I was like, you're not the first person to say that. I've had the thought, I don't know how to do that. I don't want to try to do that myself. Like I'm, you know, I'm a chef. I have all these other things going on. I'm not just going to like drop everything I'm doing and try to start a snack food line. And he was like, well, let's, let me look into it. Maybe we could be a partner on this and figure it out. And that's then when the development started kind of shaking it all out. And it was our, our branding team we worked with, Lacuna Designs. They're out of the East Coast. Incredible couple. And they helped us narrow down that brand image and the brand identity to it being, let's lean into Joe's Italian background. The fact that it's actually pasta and kind of the design of the packaging reminds you of like that Italian checkered tablecloth and just using those Italian flavors rather than kind of trying to make a new age gluten-free keto health food product. Like this is, this is a snack food by no means. Like we're, it's not a healthy chip. It's an indulgence like a Dorita. Very cool. Before you talked about this lesson of, you know, wanting to be better at everything they're doing a day after another. Where you were, I'm just curious, when you were on those different TV shows, you know, that you went Chopped and then Top Chef and then the All-Star season at Top Chef, if there's any other lessons that you have learned during those things, things that you have you learned participating to those shows? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest takeaway for me when I did those shows, especially the first time, like, so Chopped, I was a sous chef at the time. And it's a one-day shoot. You're really just kind of coming up with dishes on the fly. You're cooking and it's really just like gut instinctual cooking. There's not a lot of like thought process or planning that goes into it. Sure, I had a plan. Like I have a chop strategy. I still like share with friends of mine who are going on the show or I hear going on the show like for each round. I had a theory on what works really well after seeing so many times. But when you do something like Top Chef, it's totally different. There's like much more thought that goes into your dishes and the preparation and the shopping. And at that time, I had yet to be an executive chef of a restaurant. I had always been second in command or the third in command in that like hierarchy or the totem pole of running a kitchen. And so never having been in that lead position, I was never tasked with the final say on what goes into a dish and what doesn't what needs to be changed, what's allowed to stay, what needs to be done. You know, I offer suggestions, but it always would lie on someone else to make that final call. And it wasn't until I did Top Chef the first time that I was in that position to have to make all those decisions on my own. You're not asking anyone else, like, what does this dish need? Are there too many components? Am I doing too many things? Am I not doing enough things? Does it really need this extra garnish on here? And so going through that process was so valuable to me as a chef, as an individual. It really helped me refine and fine-tune my culinary voice. And then they put the, the time restrictions on you. And so you really then start to think about what it means most to you to get on the plate. Because you only have a certain amount of time. So you really have to decide how do you best want to represent yourself on this plate. And you have to make those edits. You have to make those decisions. And it was one of the judges, Chef Keegan, had said to me immediately after tasting my food, he didn't know my background, didn't know where I came from, he just tried my food or watched me cook. And he said something that's still like 
was very impactful to me was, you know, you seem like a chef that has this huge bag of tricks. You could do a ton of different techniques, almost to a fault, where you don't then know which ones to use. And that bag's becoming too heavy. It's becoming cumbersome. And so you just need to figure out how to choose those tricks and not try to pull them all out at once because you can. And that really kind of helps me take a step back and be much more mindful about what I was putting on the plate and making those self-edits, which becomes incredibly valuable tool and feedback in these cooking competition style series. So that's, that's one thing when someone tell you this and to comprehend it, but what was for you the process to apply it and to, you know, to put this filter in place in order to select like the right techniques for the right dish or whatever you wanted to express on the plate? You know, I think that's still like an ongoing something to consider. It's an ongoing, I don't want to say struggle, but it's an ongoing process. And so for me, a lot of times I kind of think down to the basis of what a good dish needs. It needs balance. You need acidity. You need like that anchor. You need texture. And then like with those three things, I mean, assuming you have like the right level of salt and things are cooked properly and like, you know, we're not going to count that and umami and you just want things to taste good, but you really want balance. You want that acidity and you need texture. And so as long as I'm getting those things into that dish, then I can start to look at other things that maybe do I need two different acidic components? Do I need two different things with texture? Do I need all of these extra little things on here? if They're not really adding something that the dish needs. And so letting the ingredients speak for themselves, manipulating them just enough to make them even better than they are on their own without losing that essence and soul of what a carrot is or what a piece of asparagus is. Is it like almost like the same thing when you are trying to innovate on, I would say, traditional style of cooking, thinking, I'm thinking French cooking, you know, that's my DNA, you know, or Italian cooking, that's your DNA. How can you stretch that creativity without, I would say, destroying, you know, the roots of like a, like a dish? So this balance between, you know, tradition and, and, and creativity, is it like, like the I same mean, I, th- that? I think, and like my thoughts on it, I, I don't like the word traditional at all. I try to never use the word traditional in my vocabulary when I'm describing things like I remove it. And here's why, because to me, The definition of tradition is something someone does over and over for their reasoning. And so if it's traditional in my family for the past 10 years, we eat cereal every Saturday morning. That's a tradition that may not be traditional to you or to anyone else, but that doesn't make it any less in quotes traditional. And so I think of that the same way with food. And I run into this all the time, especially in Italian cooking, because I take a very contemporary approach to my Italian dishes and I'll make something like pesto and I won't, I'll use pistachios and broccoli and jalapenos Mm -hmm. in it Mm -hmm. and cheese and call it a pesto. And then I get like the internet warriors coming out. Oh, well, I'm (laughs) Italian. That's not pesto. That's not traditional. You're not allowed to call that pesto. I disagree. I think as long as I or anyone, not just me, as long as the person that is creating that evolution of that dish understands, has taken the time to educate themselves and knows the original version, where it's coming from and where they're drawing that inspiration, I think that's okay. And they should have creative liberty and freedom to do whatever they want and be applauded for it. Now, if people are just doing things and thinking they're inventing something new or not understanding where that original dish is coming from, then I think it kind of gets, I'm not going to go after them and I don't think anyone should go after them, but then that's where it it can get a little murky and you kind of then, yes, you lose the, the essence of the origin of that food, but there's a reason why things evolve and things change. And that's how food and cultures and things start to combine and come together. And there's, there's always an evolution happening in, in cuisine and technology and anything. And so there needs to be innovation. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And so 
the word traditional to me is not something I try to use in that sense. And it's like, I'm even, I'm working on a cookbook right now called the breaking, like working title, breaking the rules of pasta, where it's exactly that, like challenging people that here's Bolognese in the historical sense, but then here's my version of Bolognese that I make here in California, looking at California as if it's its own region in Italy. And so really just kind of, you know, I'm sure it'll upset some Italians by, you know, and I'm okay with that. Yeah, that's interesting because I had a similar conversation with Chef Ed Warley. And for him, you know, the word that he doesn't use is like authentic. You know, it's because exactly for the same reason that you mentioned, because authenticity, in fact, doesn't mean anything. Because if for him is like, you know, going back to his roots in like Korea, you know, each family is going to have their own, you know, right. recipe and style. So exactly. authentic Korean doesn't mean nothing, but it's still talking about the tradition of doing kimchi because, you know, it, it's done following certain rules, which that's what I was referring to, you know, thinking that in Italian cooking, there are certain rules that, you know, that you are, that, you know, you have in order to make pasta or, you know, or whatever sauce element of the pasta dish, because I learned from you that the sauce is part of the pasta dish, correct? Sauce is part of the pasta. But yeah, no, ex that's exactly right. And I mean, the, to the kimchi example, his grandmother probably made kimchi differently than the grandmother down the street. Exactly. And no one should be able to say that one is more or less authentic than the other, because it's different than the way their grandmother made it. They're all authentic. They were made by a Korean grandmother. So, you know, to that point about pasta and kind of where the, the inspiration for the book and my style of cooking comes from is I spent, when I was working at Quince, three, four years, my, my chef, Michael Tusk, was very, he was a huge stickler for traditional, regional rules of pasta. You're not allowed to put this cheese with this shape because this is from the south of Italy and the cheese is from the north of Italy. Or you can't put this filling with this sauce because this sauce traditionally is from the west of Italy and you would only find this in the coastal part of the country. And so having to learn all of those rules and this kind of like then ties in with if you understand, you've taken the time to learn and you know the background and the origins and the history of the dishes or the history of the food, which I spent years reading books and learning and you know you couldn't put something on the menu unless you had that that re reasoning behind it which now that i know all of those rules i want nothing more than to just break them to break them yeah sure yeah but but at the same time i think that you were pleased at least to learn them correct because that's Absolutely. part of the I knowledge acquisition that you I were talking about that's, before that's what i mean a lot of people no not a lot of people some people are coming into this and just doing things randomly and they're like, this sounds good to me. I'm going to do it without knowing the history of it, the origins of it, kind of how to get there, how it got there. And I think that's then when, you know, things just, it could get problematic. <laughs> so we're we talking about a lot of pasta here. So before the call, you explained to me because I was asking you, you know, something about pasta and sauce. And you say, uh -uh. so the past, the sauce is an entire like element of the pasta dish. Correct. So it's a noodle plus the sauce that equal the pasta. Correct. So that's I, I learned because I, I didn't yes, know so, that. So thank you. You know, and for, I think that was I think that's like a Mark Vetri where I learned from him, like and something he was very adamant about was that. Pasta is the marriage of the noodle and the sauce. And like through a lot of, uh, let's call them chain Italian-American restaurants, have led a lot of people to believe that you choose your noodle, you choose your sauce, and that, you know, and or you choose your pasta, pasta. Yeah. you choose your sauce, and then that's, you have your dish and anything can happen. And really, it's about choosing that noodle, marrying it with the sauce, making the two to become one mm -hmm. in a happy marriage ceremony that happens in the pan, on the stove, in a bowl, and then you have pasta. And so to me, that's always been a very integral part of the teaching process. Whenever I'm teaching someone about pasta, pasta making, pasta cooking, is that 
that piece of knowledge as I think that's like fun. It's a fundamental building block of Italian pasta cookery. So if pasta is the combo of a noodle and a sauce, and then we said that, you know, we can break the rules, but we need to understand them first. Would you say though, the, because of the structure of the dough of a noodle, that there is specific sauces that are more like that goes better with certain noodle or the sky is the limit and we can blend whatever we want? I would say this. I think in the conceptualization of a dish is the chef's responsibility to consider all of those things. And pasta is no different. So if you're, you know, if you're making a salad, you need to think about the type of lettuce that you're using. Are you using iceberg? Are you using spinach? Are you using like a green that wilts very easily? Those like, you know, mixed garden greens that fall apart in two seconds if they get dressed. And so you're considering all of those things. If you have a very hearty green, you could use a heavier dressing. Sure, you can use a heavy dressing on a very delicate green. You just have to be mindful of how much dressing you use and how quickly it's going to be served and that type of dressing. And so you can use that analogy in the world of pasta. Think about the noodle. Think about the filling. Think about the type of dough that you're using, the thinness of that dough, the thickness of the dough. Is it whole eggs? Is it yolks? Is it flour and water-based? Are there no eggs? What type of flour are you using? Because all those things then affect the texture of that noodle. And then that's almost like your lettuce. How are you going to dress that salad? You could put any dressing with that you want. You could use any sauce or condiment or condiment, but just be mindful of how that all comes together. You want it to be a cohesive dish that eats well and makes sense. And so I wouldn't say there's like rules or recommendations and what goes with what. I would leave that up to the chef to, you know, that's a responsibility of, of creating a dish. It's like, you know, some things are going to be better with others, sure, but that doesn't mean you can't make anything tastes good together if you have the right approach to it and the right hand in the process. Before we go to another topic, I, I'm going to ask you to maybe share like one, I don't know if it's your favorites, but like a, a recipe of a guideline of doing a pasta dish. So the noodle and the sauce combo, something that, you know, someone like me, not a chef, but, you know, food enthusiast can do at home. I'm going to leave it open-ended on what the recipe is and rather focus on the pasta making portion of that because we're talking pasta. And one of the questions I get asked most often, and I think is like one of the most misunderstood aspects of pasta making is the settings on the pasta machine. And so you've made your pasta dough. There's a million different recipes out there. We could post a link to my pasta dough recipe with this podcast. You could find it. We'll go to my website you got a great egg yolk based pasta dough, but now comes the time to roll it out, to sheet it. Yep. Mm -hmm. And for me, you have to use a rolling pin. You have to get it started with the rolling pin, even if you have a machine. No machine is going to be powerful enough, those gears, to just take a solid block of thick piece of dough and just stretch it out. It's going to put too much tension and stress on the dough, on the machine. You got to get it started with the rolling pin. So that's like tip number one. Don't be afraid to kind of shape it into the shape you want your final sheet to be. So what I mean by that is don't put an oval into your pasta machine, your pasta sheeter, or you're going to get a very exaggerated oval. And that's how people end up with those gator tails, those long ends of the dough that don't get used because you can't make any sheets out of them. Instead, shape your starting piece as a rectangle so when it goes into the machine, it comes out as a exaggerated rectangle. And that way you have less waste and it's easier to work with. You don't have this really awkward, obscure piece of dough because you didn't take the time in the beginning to kind of preset yourself up for success with the rolling pin. So that's kind of like the second step. And then the third thing is the thickness setting, the numbers on the machine. Like, so here's, here's where the, the confusion comes in. Those numbers on the side of the machine are totally arbitrary. They don't mean anything. They're not universal. They don't refer to a specific measurement or size. If you look at old pasta machines in Italy, there's no numbers on them at all. They're notches. They're little like engravings that, you know, grandma would just scratch in the side of the machine 
And those are just there for consistency for you. So as you're sheeting out your dough, you know that you're going that same kind of consistent grade down every time you put the dough through the machine. And then it's also consistency for when you're doing multiple batches of pasta. So that way you're always rolling it to the same consistency. Now that's up to you as the chef, the pasta maker, to decide what that consistency is. What filling are you going to use? What type of dough recipe did you use? Some people like a thicker, chewier noodle. Some people like a thin noodle that melts in your mouth. I know, for example, like Joe Flam and I have the same pasta machine. We roll it to two different sizes. We have two different pasta doughs recipes. Our dough recipes are very different. And the setting, the dial knob on the side for what he does is different than me. And so when people always ask me, oh, what number do you roll your pasta to? It's such a loaded, misunderstood question because kind of taking that as that final piece of knowledge in your pasta making process to answer your question, there's nothing wrong with taking a small piece of dough off the end, rolling it to number two, rolling it to number three, rolling it to number one, throwing it in the pot of boiling water. And you don't need a big pot of boiling water. It could be like two inches of boiling water and just taste it. And then you decide as a pasta maker, make a little note in your phone, make a little note on a piece of paper, I like my ravioli when it's filled with cheese, roll to a number one. I like my ravioli when it's filled with meat, roll to a number two. Because I want the pasta to be a little thinner and more melt in your mouth. If I have like this luscious ricotta filling, I don't want my thick pasta to compete with the ricotta filling. But if I'm filling it with like braised beef or braised short rib, I want a thicker, chewier piece of pasta to kind of stand up to that heavier filling in the final dish. And so that number... It is not a universal number. It is up to the chef to decide, like all things that chefs do, they're the ones that decide how they they want it to be presented because that's what they like best. So that's my one, two, three recipe tip, pasta making 101. Very cool. Uh, Thank you. And in fact, you're talking about Joe Flam and I was at uh, Rosemary. In fact, uh, at the time of the NRA, uh, I was able to get to the, the restaurants and I had... Uh, that had to have been one of the busiest restaurants at, at NRA I know. week. I was, there, I was there NRA weekend too. I ate there with the pasta biz guys. Yeah, and I uh, I ate like the the cacio paper, you know, that they had on the menu. So that was my one of my dish. <laughs> so that's funny. You were talking about making reference of some restaurant that you worked at, so, so Quinn's, and then, you know, you were at Lazy Bear. And I just want to highlight one episode of uh, the time you were there, because that's uh, you were at the moment where both, in fact, moved like from, I think it was Quinn's that moved from like one to three Michelin star, and then Lazy Bear from uh, one to two Michelin star. So can you take us back to that time? And how was that feeling? Always wondering you know, working in the restaurants that got a third star or like a second star, what's the feeling within, you know, the, the team when that happens? It's, I mean, it, I think, thinking about it, you just talked about it and you kind of talked about that progression like that is, I mean, it gave me goosebumps. So I kind of like reliving those memories and those, like those feelings. It's surreal. It's a totally, it's one of those experiences that is very hard to describe or relate to unless you've been through it very similar to like Top Chef or any sort of grueling, emotionally invested, draining experience. Because like at Quince and at Lazy Bear, we were we were fully committed. Like the team we had, there was not a lot of turnover during that time. And there was, you know, there was maybe one or two positions that were turning over. You had that new person leave or it wasn't cut out for them. But a lot of us, we were there from that one all the way up to three. And we were grinding together. It was, you know, this was the time of 14, 16 work, day work weeks where you would just come in every day. You would be there 10 a.m. to 2 a.m. Just grueling, invested cooking. And it wasn't because like we had to, we wanted to be there. Like we were all just, and this is like, the type of environment where you're holding each other accountable. Like you don't want to let the people down next to you. 
you're calling someone out if you see like they're on the cutting board. It's not, oh, those aren't sliced thin enough or, oh, those don't look nice enough. You're not going to use that. Go throw that away. Like it wasn't the chefs having to manage and monitor the kitchen and tell people things weren't right. Like the cooks were holding each other to that standard because we all wanted to be better. We all wanted to do better than the day before. And it's just then to get the validation of that that Michelin recognition on top of all that kind of makes it all worth worthwhile because you're putting in so much. A lot of people don't realize how much you sacrifice when you're cooking at that level. You're sacrificing friends, holidays, birthdays, weekends, family, all of these things you're giving up for. Is it worth it? I think for me it was. Mm-hmm. I, I think so. I don't regret it at yeah. all. There'll definitely be people that don't think that's worth it. And that, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. They're, they have different priorities, different values. For me, I, I 100%. At that I, moment, I think yeah. it was worth it. I think it, it defined my, my career, my cooking style. It got me to where I am today. It gave me that drive, that passion, the knowledge, mm-hmm. the technique, mm-hmm. the understanding of food and cooking, cuisine, everything from being in that environment. So, so entrenched in it and surrounded by it. And it was the only thing you talked about or thought about. And I just, so, you know, so it's a, it's a constant pressure, obviously constant I mean, pressure to get there and to maintain it, you know, after to maintain it. <laughs> because and people are expecting thing. that quality when they, you know, they arrive, well, we are going to, you know, to spend the time at a third Michelin star, a three Michelin star. For us, we were cooking that same dish over and over and over every day. But then you have to remember that diner that's coming in, this is the one time in their life, most likely, that they're going to eat this. They've saved up however much money or for however long or have traveled across the globe to come eat here, to eat the food that you're cooking. And so we, you have to be in that mindset where you're, there are no do-overs. There's no second chances. Everything needs to be perfect because it's not fair to that person that this is their one thing, the one opportunity they're eating to eat here for it to not be perfect. They deserve it to be as good as it can be. And so that's what's in the back of your head the whole time. It's not like, oh, you know, maybe they'll be back next week and the burger will be better. We had an off night. There, you don't have an off night. And then traditionally, Coming over to Lazy Bear was a totally different kitchen environment than what I was experiencing at Quince. They had just gotten their first store. And for people that don't know, Lazy Bear started as a pop-up. It was started in an apartment by a lawyer, not a trained chef. It was just a cook, a guy that was obsessed with food, incredibly smart, incredibly passionate, and was cooking and cooking out of his place, started hosting dinner parties that just grew and grew and grew. He surrounded himself with very talented chefs, had a great eye for business and managing and kind of organizing the whole restaurant and the way that it came together. And not a lot of people were taking them seriously, especially at the time in San Francisco, because all the Michelin starred restaurants were, you know, fine dining, white tablecloths, very, you know, white glove sort of service where you have to wear a suit or whatever it is to, to fit in where then they were blasting music. It was a dinner party every night. The food was beautiful. It was plated with tweezers. It was using the highest quality of ingredients. We were going to the farmer's market three days a week, but we're having a really good time while cooking. We're having fun. We're laughing. We're joking with the guests. We're putting on a dinner and a show. And this, like, you know, a lot of other restaurants in that, that upper echelon at the time did not take us seriously. Kind of, turn their nose up at us. Like, oh, I don't know how you guys got a star. What are you guys doing over there? Like, isn't that place kind of like, you know, you're listening to rap music while you're serving dinner and you guys like think you're, you're, you're cooking fine dining. And then when we got that second star the very next year, that's when it, everything changed. It like turned heads of the entire city and people were like, oh, these guys are doing something different. And I think it really changed a lot of, cooks and chefs perspective and it was the sharp start of this like shift of kitchen culture where it doesn't need to be this super intense super overbearing almost you know where people are afraid to make a mistake in the kitchen sort of environment because 
then you start to look at energy and the way people feel. And I, you know, I'm a firm believer that if someone is happy when they're cooking, the food's going to taste better versus if someone is scared or stressed or whatever it is as they're cooking, the food's going to not be as good. And I think that that could, I mean, that could maybe fall over into anything that, yeah. you know, bring, we, bring love into the cooking. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. And so we were all having a really great time and it, it translated into the food. So how do you see the industry evolving? Because you just mentioned, you know, this evolution with like Lazy Bear having like a different style and still cooking at the high level. I know the pandemic, you know, happened, you know, in between. We have seen a lot of things, you know, about the industry. It's kind of like open like the veil on, you know, that that industry had to change. So how do you how do you see the, the industry evolving in the future? I think it's really great that that veil was pulled back and so many things that were kind of never talked about in the industry, staff benefits and wages, the mental health aspect of things, all of the overhead that goes into being an owner and all of the sacrifices that cooks and chefs make to get food in front of the guest were things that were never talked about. And the pandemic really pulled that veil back and made a lot more people aware of that. What I really hope and want to see is that the diner is willing to make positive changes by being okay with the service charges added on to checks, by the prices of food increasing and not being upset at the restaurant or being upset at the staff or being upset at the owners because they have to pay more when it's not like the restaurant is making more money because they're charging more. They're actually just being able to provide better to the employees and the people that they're working for. And so that's the, the evolution, the continued evolution that I want to see and I hope to see. And I know most people are okay with that, but I think it just has to come with a re-education of the masses, of our food systems, of the cost of doing business, the cost of goods, and the nature of things. I think there's outside of that, this other evolution through social media. That we could we could talk an entire podcast, yeah, absolutely, that on its own because that's that's a world that I very much am ingrained in now, and it's a huge part and portion of the business and businesses that I run and do because I'm not cooking in the restaurant anymore. I do my guest chef events, I do my charity events, I travel, but a huge portion of what I do is social media based, and social media has given. So many cooks, chefs, creators, artists, a platform like never before to do what they love, to get paid for what they love, and to enjoy it. Now, obviously, there are those, those negative sides of social media that I think come with anything. There's always going to be negative sides of, of anything we talk about. And so just having those in mind, knowing that there is a bad side to things and just being able to kind of see that and be aware of that and having that balance. But, you know, there back when I was coming and cooking, if, if you want to see how Josh Nyland was butchering fish in Australia, you'd only heard about it. People would talk about it. There'd be rumors about it. Oh, I went there. I know someone that ate there, but you wouldn't be able to see it unless you went and you spent two weeks staging at fish butchery versus now you want to know what Josh Nyland is doing, you hop on his Instagram and you can watch for hours and see all the different things he's doing with fish, making ice cream out of the, the collagen that's found in fish eyes and just like crazy things, reinventing the game, changing the game, what he's doing with fish butchery and cooking that you would never be able to know or see or learn without social media. So I think there's kind of like those two really big positive sides giving people platforms, but also the dissemination and spreading of knowledge is now at everyone's fingertips, which is incredible. Okay. So do you think that there's going to be then for the role of chefs, you know, chefs at restaurants, chefs on TV, chefs, you know, doing things on the internet, private chefs doing, you know, private events? You know, that's the profile of, you know, or like the, the options that exist for someone who is passionate about cooking today. I think what, what has happened is there are now 
many more avenues and many different options for someone interested in the culinary arts. I think there's a huge, I want—I don't know if it's argument is the right word. I know there are different factions in on the internet and groups of people on how the word chef is used. And to me, I feel like chef is, is one of those titles that your peers instill upon you. It's not something you get because you finished culinary school and it's not something you just reach a certain point and all of a sudden you start calling yourself or you become a chef. I think it's a thing that is you have the respect of those around you and they call you chef as a term of endearment, a term of respect because they look up to you for advice, for leadership, for guidance, um, for mentorship. And all these things. And I think that's where the essence of being a chef really lies, is that ability to inspire and lead and guide and manage and run an operation, no matter what that operation may be, in addition to being able to cook. You know, I think that is a given when you're talking about a chef. But, you know, there's a lot of people who have never stepped foot in a restaurant using the title chef. And I think an argument can be made that they're are totally valid and they are chefs. But I think it it is a word that could potentially be watered down or misused or at the very least just be misleading. Mm-hmm. Will you ever be interested to work in a restaurant again? I'm currently working on some concepts to expand on, into the fast casual world. I want to do a fast casual concept simply because it's easier to give back to the communities that they're in. There is less overhead. There's a bigger profit margin. It's one of those things that I don't necessarily then need to be at every day. I could really empower the staff there, people that are running it there, providing them with equity, but then also then having a like purpose-driven piece to each one, giving back to the community, whether it's providing sandwiches to the houseless or donating part of sales to a charity or really just kind of having an impactful purpose-driven business which is much harder to do in a larger standard brick and mortar sort of sit down restaurant. So I, I like I like the idea of fast casual. I think after post pandemic, that really kind of shed light on the cost of doing business and having a restaurant. And I have so many different things, thankfully, luckily, gratefully, that I'm currently working on and invested in and busy with. I wouldn't feel right or good about opening a sit-down restaurant that I couldn't be at every day. And so I'm enjoying what I'm doing. I like doing a lot of different things. I like to say I have a lot of noodles in the pot right now. And so a brick and mortar in that, here we go with the word traditional sense, sure, is not something that's currently like in the works for me, but definitely I want to be able to get my food to the masses and I have some plans to do that. Okay. Any uh, concept of uh, ghost kitchen in the mix or no? No, you know, I'm, I'd rather focus on these brick and mortars and not because ghost kitchens then rely heavily on the delivery mm-hmm. apps, which again, positives and negatives. There's a lot of good that sure. they brought, but there's also a lot of bad that they've done to, mm-hmm. to businesses and to restaurants. True. And so to build concepts around that is not, not on my current to oh, do list. Okay. Chef, I mean, this is really great. I mean, I really enjoyed the conversation, but I have to be respectful of your time. So I'm going to switch to the f- few rapid fire questions I have for you. Rapid fire, let's go. So Wait, you, you, fire, you, fire questions. you and I are going on a tasting tour in the Bay Area. So what are the five spots that you are going to take me to? Bay Area? Yeah. Or LA, uh, if you rather LA, you can do LA if you want. It's, you know, well, it's two different two different lists. So I can do all in one day. We we go we go to Bread Belly for breakfast, hundred percent. Get some pastries, Bread Belly for breakfast. We go to Deli Board for lunch. Then, assuming like we kind of are able to eat an unlimited amount of food, I'd like to do like a triple bang for dinner. Like we do Ernest for sure. I'd be torn. On where, oh, like San Tongue chicken wings would be a great option. Rich Table is like a classic, probably Absolutely. one of the places I've yep. eaten the most times at in San Francisco. If we're going to do a tasting menu, 
Lazy Bear is super unique and like one of a kind dining experience. Californios is another one of my favorites. Just the food that Fal is doing is so unique. I think that kind of gives us a good range of we got fine dining, we got casual dining, we got super casual dining, we have fun. I think that kind of gives us the whole the whole hook and ladder there. Very good. What's your favorite guilty pleasure food? Oh, nachos, without a doubt. Nachos, nachos. nachos and pasta are my two favorite food groups. Okay. I love cooking pasta. I don't eat pasta very much. But nachos, I could eat nachos every single day and never get tired of them. Classic nachos or special twist? I mean, like to me, two things that like really make good nachos, you need some sort of crema or sour cream. Mm-hmm. And I like queso sauce. I don't okay. like just cheese melted on chips. I'll eat it without without crema and I'll eat <laughs> chips with cheese. Of course, don't get me wrong. But those are like my two. If it has those, I'm happy. Okay. You don't need anything else on it. Three cookbooks that inspired you the most? Oh, without a doubt, number one was Mastering Pasta by Mark Vetri. Mm-hmm. The first the first three or four chapters in there, especially when I was getting started in my pasta making career, I read, reread them every, every two or three months easily. And they just talk about kind of understanding what each ingredient brings to the party and how that helps you then understand pasta dough and dough making. And just dough in general, bread dough, pasta dough, and kind of really understanding the proteins and wheats and different things and how that all comes together. So mastering pasta. Yeah, I remember the Alinea cookbook when it first came out was a really big deal to me. That was a good one. And I mean, if we're going way back, one of my first cookbooks I had was Ink by the Voltaggio Brothers. Oh, wow. Yes. They're, they're, Michael's approach and creativity is something I always aspire to. And his ability to kind of reinterpret and rethink dishes, I really, really enjoy. Oh, let's throw, I got I to gotta throw Le Pigeon in there. Gabriel Rucker and his food. I remember my first meal at Le Pigeon and totally mind blown by the way he puts flavors and food and textures together. Un, almost unparalleled to the point where you're like, this shouldn't work. This, why are you putting these things together? You just named 40 different components. That makes no sense. And then you eat it and you're like, holy shit. What is, is what is what is the book? Le Pigeon. Le oh, Pigeon. Le Pigeon. Okay. Yeah, Le Pigeon in, in Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and I just recently got to eat there again this past year. And it surpassed all my expectations and memories of the place. And just over-the-top cooking in a very kind of uh, approachable environment. So I would, I would definitely add that to okay. the list. When you were in the kitchen, what were your biggest pet peeve? My biggest pet peeves? Unfolded towels. <laughs> Always keep your towel folded, especially if you walk away from your cutting board. Don't just like leave your cutting board because then your station, it's just like, then if you have to stand next to that or walk past that, it's, ugh, don't want to have to do that. Sticky squeeze bottles or like dirty squeeze bottles because it's just gross. And then like you touch it, your hands get dirty and it's just like a sign of like cleanliness. And then two things on a menu, big pet peeves of mine is if a menu says wild mushrooms and or wild mushroom mix. Like you'll see like, oh, wild mushrooms yeah. on the pizza or like whatever. And then there's like king trumpets in there and <laughs> pure peas and just like a mix of like that chef's blend that you could buy that are all cultivated mushrooms. Like they look wild. Like, oh, these look wild. Like in the surf, <laughs> like they're crazy looking, but they're not wild. They're, they yeah, grow. Yeah. And the other one is the word when restaurants write soft scrambled eggs on them. Nine times out of 10, they're not actually soft scrambled. And you're being French, you can know exactly what I'm talking about. A proper soft scrambled egg is almost like pudding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they should be dripping off your spoon. And you rarely would you ever get a true soft scrambled egg in just like a breakfast brunch sort of fast restaurant that writes soft scrambled on the menu. So pet peeves there. We can edit it that. <laughs> Uh, my last one, beside the classics like, you know, ketchup, mayo, and so on, mustard, without, what condiment spice, sauces, or dressing you like to have on hand at home? I always have QP on hand, QP mayo. I always have a variety of mustards. Mustard's probably my favorite, like, regular condiment, like yellow, Dijon, whole grain, always those three on hand. And Calabrian chili paste, I always have. the. I like the paste versus the peppers, because the paste is easier to use. You don't have to get out a cutting board. You can just scoop it and use it. Yeah. Chef, thank you so much you know, for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. That was awesome. Appreciate it very much. And thank you, everybody out there, for listening along. I hope you enjoyed it. 
Thanks for listening today. Joe Sesto was really a captivating and engaging guest. You can follow him on Instagram at chef.joe.sasto. And you can find the recipe of the egg dough that he was talking about in this episode on his website at joesasto.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a colleague or a friend. You can also revisit the collection of dialogues I had with award-winning culinary leaders in my upcoming book, Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door, based on the first three seasons of the podcast. The book will be published on November 8th, but you can already pre-order it wherever you buy books online. Don't forget also to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts or on social media at Flavors Unknown on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. My next episode will be with Chef Nelson German from Alamar and Sobremesa in Oakland, California. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at Flavors Unknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.